0: Hello and welcome to the Theologians Table podcast. My name is Tim and I am your host. So in today's episode, I'm going to be talking about being in the world and not of it. And we're going to be taking a look at the passage that inspired that. We're gonna be taking a look at what discipleship means. Then we're gonna be going through some additional passages that lend to this topic, and then I'll be going over questions that I have regarding what it means to be in the world and not of it. So this is a standalone episode and it's not going to be part of my Back to Basics series, although it could be if I wanted it to. But this episode was difficult to write on many fronts. Uh, It's because I've been out of school uh, for a few months now. And I already feel out of practice in writing and then putting something together uh, with structure. I also didn't want this episode to be like others that I've done in the past. I mean, I I didn't want to retread things that I've said before. But maybe there's some things that should be repeated. Uh, I'm also working on a bunch of other things at the moment, and it was difficult to put brain power into this. In fact, I almost chickened out on this episode. But uh, then I was really encouraged by something that I've heard recently relating to this episode, so I think we should take a crack at it. I, w- I want to talk about John 17, verses 14 through 17, where Jesus talks about he, how he and his disciples are in this world, but they're not of it. And he says it in the context of a prayer, and I'm going to read that passage right now. It says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world that's John 17, 14 through 18, it looks like, in the NRSV version. Um, so this is an important passage because it talks about the tensions that Christians have or will have in this life where they are to have a committed following to Christ, but there are so many temptations that can lead away from Christ and his kingdom So the world is not the earth, it's not the planet earth um, in this context. It simply means that it's a place ruled over uh, by fallen human nature. And it's emphasized as a place that actively hates Jesus. They hated Jesus because he was actively exposing their love of darkness, their love of sin. So there's the sense of Jesus calling us out of the world to stop participating in the things that make us, that make the world the world, uh, to turn towards Him, to believe in Him, to have faith in Him, which allows us to be reconciled back to God through what He does on the cross, and then He expects us and even empowers us to stay turned turned towards Him. On the other hand, Jesus does this so that his disciples can engage with the world, the people, with the people in it, rather than depart from society altogether. So there's this paradoxical tension of not belonging to the world, having a different set of values from the world, yet still existing in the world, and engaging with people who can have a wildly opposite uh, values than you because... Uh, we've got to engage with these people because uh, we're commanded in Matthew and Acts to go out and make disciples of all nations. So, in addition to fallen human nature, it also—I uh, also mean in the sense of what Paul described uh, in Ephesians six twelve when it comes to defining the world. Uh, So he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So we are dealing with our fallen natures and then the reality of evil and the spiritual forces that nurture and influence evil. The world in the sense of this planet Uh, and the rest of life on this planet is impacted by both of those paradigms. So this is not about escapism. Let me be clear about that. And we need to talk about disciples and discipleship. It's hard for me to talk about discipleship objectively uh, because I am a discipleship pastor. Uh, And even though I have a a master's in theology, The purpose for getting that was to use uh, theology as a tool in creating disciples uh, of Jesus Christ. Generally, I don't think that there has been good teaching on discipleship uh, here in the United States, and I I think that is kind of painting with a broad brush, uh, admittedly, but Uh, If you go back to any of my earlier episodes that deal with the academy and the church, I think discipleship kind of went on a decline um, based on, you know, having to protect God from the uh, the academy, uh, protect scripture from the academy, and then it went on a further decline the more that politics was wed to Christianity so and now it seems like uh, more people more and more Christians are 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 discipled by 24-hour news uh, rather than um, disciples who are uh, devoted to uh, the uh, the Christian life what Jesus teaches about, uh, how we should be and uh, and then sanctification and all that. So we reinterpreted Matthew 28:19 to say, go out and create converts of all nations. So the issue with converts is not that we should shouldn't be seeking to win people over to Christ. We should be worried about converting people, but that uh, simply converting doesn't convey the heart of the gospel. And here's what I I mean by that: the gospel is about reconciling humanity back to God in both uh, what what they call the judicial sense, and that's right standing before God uh, and having our sins forgiven. Uh, you know, we're repenting; we realize that we are sinful beings uh, in need of forgiveness of our sins, and then there there is the therapeutic sense where we are healed from our iniquities and we're offering over the things to Jesus which can cause us to sin. So it's about the formation uh, of the person and the community to become more uh, like Christ. And that's called uh, that whole process really is called sanctification. If you're simply a convert, you can say that Christ is your savior. But as a disciple, Christ is not only your savior, but he's also your Lord. And that is lived out. It's not just a stated thing. So you're connecting the knowledge that you have been saved by Christ to living as one who uh, has been saved by Christ, connecting the intellect to the character, as Dallas Willard would, would say. So the goal is to move from convert to disciple, and that's a process. It's not, it's not something that is instantaneous as much as some people would like it to be. there there is a process there. Uh, when you have Christianity, which just stays at the convert stage though, that's kind of when Christianity enculturates the world back into itself. So it's where you're just a Christian in the broad cultural sense as as in you appreciate the general blessings and and values and traditions of Christianity. But it doesn't go too much beyond that point because uh, we become too preoccupied again with with uh, being part of the world and how the world sees things, rather than how Christ sees things. And we can see specific examples of that, such as with the Roman Church becoming a, a, a political machine for so long, and then the Church in Germany. Um, during, during the early 20th century, when it came to World War II, that the, the vast majority of the German church supported Nazism. And, and, of course, you had people like Bonhoeffer and, and Karl Barth who rejected all that. But even now, here in the United States, uh, you have that with the over-accommodation of politics into Christianity. At the same time, uh, discipleship has also been taught in a legalistic way as well, meaning living as a uh, Christian has been codified. And if those codes have been violated in some way, then you are accused of being all sorts of things like a heretic, or if you're a woman, uh, maybe you've been called a Jezebel. Sometimes with the intention of encouraging discipleship, Leaders have promoted a fanatic picture, where a Christian should have a pushy, no holds barred, in-your-face type of evangelism, without those people having the gifting of evangelism, and they're often, you know, criticizing other uh, the- theology of uh, differing Christian traditions. Um, so the problem with these types of methods is that they're inadvertently incorporating elements from the world, uh, mostly how the world judges uh, from and, and, and while at the same time they're trying to free people from and I think those ish, those two methods kind of f- flow in and out of one another. So The Gospel of John, though, he grounds discipleship in the love of Jesus. Um, As John 15, 12 says that Jesus wants you to love one another just as I, I being Jesus, has has loved you. So, A person who uses that pushy attitude in promoting discipleship may argue back uh, something like, well, I'm just doing that because I love people. Um, but that's kind of uh, abusive and, and manipulative, uh, manipulative if I can say that word. But we must remember that the Bible qualifies the love of Jesus. And the Greek word that John uses for love in this verse, uh, the verse that I just read, is agape, or agape, uh, which is a form of the word agape, and which is a word that one word that means love. The ancient conception of love is nuanced, though. For example, there is the filios love, which is a brotherly love or a friendship. Then there is the eros love, uh, which we get the word erotic from. That's the sensual love. And then there is uh, storge or storge. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but that is a familial love. And then there is agape, which is an unconditional love. It's also a kind of love that keeps loving in spite of rejection. Now, that definition might make the fanatic argue his case stronger. But agape love in the Bible is not associated with a cold religious love that's done for the sake of mere duty. In the, in the Christian sense, it's rooted in the goodness of God. In fact, agape is very close to the Greek word that is commonly used for goodness, which is agathos. Um, and Paul even qualifies agape love even more. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, he says, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, it is not boastful, it's not arrogant, it, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it's not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrong. Love... Uh, Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. I got goosebumps. <laughs> so we we must always be on guard of how we are defining discipleship and the kind of love we're grounding it in. In this type of love, this is how we find that we are in the world, but not of it our love and discipleship are characterized by the one who came to save the world the one who can transform us through his agape love that is jesus christ so getting back to the topic of being in the world and not of it even though the passage in first or excuse me john is what prompted the exploration of this episode and really it's a big theme for john especially in his in first john his his epistle. But I don't want to I don't want to just stay in John because the rest of the New Testament has has a lot to say. And I kind of got mesmerized by another thread that weaves through this whole thing. So one of the more popular verses that some Christians cite when it comes to being in the world and not of it is Hebrews 13:14, which says, "For here we have no lasting city. But we are looking for the city that is to come. But you may have heard it's interpreted as, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. And there's an old hymn that uh, that comes from. Uh, what, what does that mean exactly? The first thing that is helpful to know is that this verse is set up by the discussion of Abraham and those who had faith like his, his descendants that had the same type of faith as him. You see, Abraham was given a promise from God that he would have descendants that numbered more than the stars in the sky and sand on the seashore if he left his own country. But God didn't give Abraham uh, a final destination of where he would ultimately settle. And even in Canaan, Abraham and his household lived in tents as nomads. Abraham was a sojourner, and even though he did not have a permanent home in his lifetime, he was still obedient to God. So his descendants then who exercised that same obedience in their faith of God's promises were also like Abraham, in that they didn't express to have a permanent home. Uh, Through Abraham through Abraham, they were promised something, uh, what the writer of Hebrews calls a city whose foundation is built by God. He writes, uh, the, the author of Hebrew writes, all of these, these being descendants died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confess that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way Make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. if they had been thinking of the land of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. Some suggest that this city lies in the future, and they would be right. Uh, it can be interpreted as the eschatological city or the or the New Jerusalem. And some suggest that it's uh, it is uh, Jerusalem after the Israelites came out of bondage. But it also speaks to a transcendent city, meaning it's one like we can't define. It's beyond what we can imagine it to be. When we get to Hebrews 13, 14, though, the writer is reminding his readers of a few things. The preceding verses say, Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp and bear the abuse he endured. These verses exist uh, in a section that has to do with a call to holiness, but in this specific passage it centers on the sacrifice on what the sacrifices of Jesus imply about holiness in the community of Christ so saying go to him outside the camp well that recalls the nomadic life of Abraham and those who obeyed and had faith in the promises of God but by the way don't think that you want to experience abuse while you're on this pilgrimage just as Abraham did. Uh, Even within his own community, he experienced abuse against him. But most importantly, uh, just as with Christ, how he suffered and experienced abuse. What is this life of pilgrimage, though? What does it mean when it says that we have no lasting city, but that we are looking for the city to come, for the So for the audience of Hebrews, it was most likely meant that they were not to put all of their stock in the Jewish sacrificial system at the temple. So the temple had just been destroyed, and there is ample evidence to suggest that Jewish Christians still took part in cultic worship leading up to the destruction of the temple and uh, Jerusalem by the Romans. Uh, They were facing a crisis. But what does the author of Hebrews say several times throughout the letter? He says, Christ is better. So this passage isn't concerned with rejecting everything that is of this earth or anything that is material. Uh, it's about, it's And it's not about an escape. Instead, it's about reorienting where the place of encountering God is. And that is in the person of Jesus rather than uh, in uh, a geographical city or temple. When Christ returns, however, believers will take part in a full and eternal encounter with God in the city which is to come. But what does that mean for us in this present age? It means that the Christian faith is a pilgrimage, and we take this pilgrimage in obedient faith to the promises of God ultimately as a people who follow Christ we can't be at home in a world that doesn't follow Christ if you are a person or if we are a people who are obedient to Christ we aren't going to feel at home anyway the only way to feel at home in this present world is to be conformed back to it um, yet we live we're, we live sacrificially as Christ did and that calls us out of comfortable places and it'll, it'll cause us to be abused in in one degree or another, um, but our sacrifices of praise and worship towards Christ will be a signpost uh, to this world of the one that's to come. If our pilgrimage is to be a signpost to the world of the world to come, then that implies that we are going to believe and act differently from those who do not know Christ. And those who have given themselves over to their fallen natures, or what the Bible calls the flesh. Uh, there are many places we can look in the New Testament that informs us on what Christian conduct looks like and what it doesn't look like. But if we're going to follow this theme of pilgrimage, I think one important passage we need to look at comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11-12, through 12, which say, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that, though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. So where the author of Hebrews hinted and implied that Christians are not permanently at home in this world, although it's more in an it's more than an implication in Hebrews because the pilgrimage theme is thread throughout the whole book. But Peter outrightly states it by calling his audience aliens and exiles. And in some translations, he, it may even say sojourners. The, wor- the word he uses for aliens is paroikos, which means foreigner. But he was addressing, we need to recognize that he was addressing people in the church Who were civically part of the Roman Empire, so again we are revisiting the motif of Christians not having a city, but looking for the one to come. Uh, But wait a minute, wait a minute, because in verse thirteen and fourteen, Peter still expects that while they are temporary residents, um, that they must abide by the rules of the land, and he says, "For the sake, for the Lord's sake." He could just say, for God's sake, (laughs) accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors, as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. So again, I cannot stress this enough. Being not of the world is not about escapism, because Peter believed that Christians still had a relationship to society uh, that they resided in. And the duties that were were required of them by their governments were important to maintain because they were able to show what the conduct of a Christian is in their civic relationships. Now, I want you to know here that Peter is laying a lot of responsibility on believers and how they conduct themselves. And he does that through imagery. We already have the imagery of the pilgrim slash foreigner who was who has their hope in the city to, to come. But earlier in chapter 2, Peter calls members of the church, he calls them holy and royal priests, and that comes with heavy responsibility. I love how one scholar put it. He said, "'Call this children of the light. Christians are free. Their freedom, however, binds them to their calling.'" They are free in bondage to God. They know what it means to fear God in His presence. They are free to love their fellow Christians. The dark blindness of sinful selfishness is gone. They are free to love. They are also free to honor unbelievers as God's creatures and to respect the role of authority given to each one. So, that is one part of how Christians, uh, in this sense, were to conduct themselves as a foreigner. Um, but what is another? Uh, we could go down the trail of the fruit of the Spirit, which contracts, contrasts itself to the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh uh, in Scripture are sometimes called uh, a vice list, uh, because they're listed all together. And, and these two opposing lists are the the fruit of the spirit and the works of the flesh those the viceless uh, anyways it's part of what's called the two ways motif one way leading to life and one way leading to death and I talk about that particular motif in the episode that I did about prophecy if you want to go back to that one um, or we could mention how Peter goes on to talk about suffering. And I think that's important because, like Hebrews, he ties suffering to the suffering of Christ. But he also says something else that's interesting uh, in saying, Have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with blessing. A revolution that is Christianity doesn't spread through the same way other revolutions do, uh, ones that involve violence. Instead, it spreads through the agape love of Christ and those who devote themselves to being like Christ. Uh, back in Hebrews 11, there is this part where the author is talking about Abraham and his descendants who had faith like him didn't get to see the promises fulfilled, but could see them far off and greeted them. It's almost like they had a vision of what it was going to be like. And it's my belief uh, that when Christians conduct themselves in a way that honors God and honors others, we are giving a glimpse to those around us of what the coming kingdom might be like. In any case, though, Peter says that A Christian's honorable deeds will cause others to glorify God when he returns to judge. So they will see the truth of believers' actions because the physical presence of God will have brought them into full light. But remember, part of honoring God is honoring and respecting others despite what kind of relationship they have with God. So are believers just exiles, just sojourners, if we are not citizens of this world, are we, not, are we not citizens of anywhere? Well, I have a good feeling that some of you might be saying, oh, no, we are citizens of somewhere. In fact, you would be right to say that. We are not just uh, uh, sojourners and exiles. Um, we are citizens. And in fact, Philippians 3 verse 20, Paul states, our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there uh, that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus. And that, that's interesting because in in Ephesians, uh, Paul states that uh, before we're reconciled back to God, we are strangers and foreigners to Him. But once we're in the family of God, we transition over to being foreigners and aliens to the world. Um, so there's a lot uh, of things that of. Philippians 3.20 does for us in the context of this episode. We have this continuing consensus among several writers in the New Testament that qualifies the difference between the, the society that Christians belong to and the societies that uh, continue to be governed by fallen human nature, along with the consensus that it does not mean that Christians are separat- separatists in every fact of life aspect of life because of the responsibility of being a royal priesthood who are signposts of the coming kingdom and are to be the light of Christ among nations. So, royal priesthood, I covered a little bit, uh, not a little bit, but a lot in my podcast about the fall. I shared uh, that uh, uh, Bible project video which, which covered that and a royal priest is 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 someone who bears the image of God and their responsibility is to care uh, for the earth and that doesn't go away just because we live in a fallen world in fact once you're made new in Christ that's when you uh, that image of God the image of, of Jesus is restored within you and you're a ro- and you take on again the role of a royal priest and Paul is doing another thing in this verse, though, and it's something that we need to—we, it's something that we take for granted these days, uh, and that is when he says the word savior. So it's not a word that appears in the New Testament except for a small handful of times, and the reason for that is because the Greek gods and goddesses and their Roman counterparts were. They were proclaimed as saviors, and it was also a title given to Caesar within the uh, emperor worship cult. Uh, so, in fact, it was an official declaration around 48 BC that Caesar would be referred to as universal savior of mankind. Uh, no ego there, right? Uh, but if Christians believed that they were foreigners to this world, they wouldn't adopt that same kind of language as popular religion. On the other hand, they would use the language in a polemic way if they were contrasting between Christ and the emperor to say, no, 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 no. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And this isn't really a a foreign concept, concept to the Bible. If you look at the plague story in Exodus, every plague was an attack by God on the Egyptian pantheon. God was saying to the Egyptians, especially Pharaoh, that uh, you and your gods are are nothing. I'm the one and only here. Here in Philippians and in other parts of the New Testament where Christ is mentioned as Savior, that's a polemic towards those who think they're the real rulers. So Jesus is the only true king, the Savior, and he's the eschatological one, meaning He's ushered in his kingdom, but he arrives in his fullness and consummate his kingdom for eternity. So there will be only one kingdom, his, for the rest of eternity. Uh, However, the message here is that for the Philippians that Christ is complete and total Savior in every aspect of the body of Christ. Paul doesn't want members of the church clinging to human customs for salvation, whether they be people insistent on following the Mosaic law in full, and even politically in the uh, Greco-Roman world. So the Philippians are faced with a choice of considering how they're going to think of themselves. Uh, They're either citizens of heaven waiting obediently for the one true king, or they can just be regular Roman citizens without the hope of the city to come. So in these three instances, we learn that the Christian faith is a pilgrimage and um, that the central place of worship is in the person of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we may face abuse. We also learn since the Christian faith is a pilgrimage, we are foreigners and exiles to societies and uh, systems that are ruled by fallen human nature who have influence from powers opposed to God, but also that we have a responsibility to God to be his royal priests to the world and act with conduct that will glorify him among unbelievers. Then we learn that even though we might be exiles, we do indeed have citizenship, but it lies with with the coming kingdom. Uh, at the beginning of the episode, I said that this was uh, difficult to put together for a few reasons. Ev- everything, though, that I just went through, uh, that, that wasn't the hard part. It was easy, and it, it, it was fun. I like doing it. Um, I would even say, that, though, that it was a kind of general overview of the text that I use. And uh, now you might be asking, you know, if that wasn't the problem, uh, what is your problem? Uh, what's your problem? I guess my problem is asking over and over again these questions in Christian circles. Uh, people who have been Christians for quite some time. Uh, questions towards the church. Um, and, um, you know, it's like, how many times can we read these passages of Scripture or Scripture in general and still not get the picture, how long are we going to keep framing salvation in a way that's not holistic, as if it's just forensic, or if it's just therapeutic? Um, If you know me, then I would have probably concentrated on, on the therapeutic. I would have emphasized that. Um, even just a year ago. A lot of it has to do with because the forensic is emphasized so much by certain uh, Christian traditions, and the therapeutic cannot be overlooked. But uh, they're both important. We need to recognize that um, they need to be held together. Uh, And uh, another question I have is, how long are we going to keep politicizing the gospel? Uh, and that's a question for any political party. How long are we going to keep using the gospel as a weapon, uh, you know, holding up a gun uh, to the uh, uh, opposing political party we don't believe to be uh, Christian? Um, how long are we going to link the success of the economy to the health of Christianity? Uh, just because the the economy's in the crapper, does that mean that... Uh, God is not control anymore or that the Christian faith is weak Uh, I don't think uh, we should be thinking like that Uh, how long are we going to keep living in in fear to propaganda Um, you could I suppose lump government propaganda in there and and conspiracy theories coming at us from any direction I'm not even sure I want to get started going down this road But Jesus said in John that the truth sets you free. My question is, do you feel free when you read stuff and say stuff that causes you and others to be constantly looking over your shoulder? Does that make you feel free? Does it make you feel peaceful? How long can we say that Jesus is the Prince of Peace without displaying any of that peace in our lives? How long are we going to think that freedom and power means having power over others rather than having the freedom and power to to serve? How long are we going to think that being a Christian means following simple rules to get into heaven? How long are we going to think that salvation is just needed to get out of of hell? Uh, Is this a game of monopoly? How long are we going to be reactionary towards the art world uh, or the art that the world produces versus being responsive to it. I've got this conviction that Christians should be producing some of the best art and films around, um, but we often, what we often do is bubble ourselves in. We bubble ourselves in and produce content that is is cheesy. It's cornball and it just barely scratches the surface. And we do that under the guise of being family-friendly, except it's only relevant to our bubble. You know, it should, what we produce, the art or the films, or if you want to combine those two, whatever, should rival anything that put that is put out by what we call the world. And I know two artists in particular, two Christian artists who who do do that. And I know that there are others. There's a, I have their art hanging on my wall and I use uh, their art in, in my sermons just because it's, it, it, it's amazing. Um, But we don't, we don't always get that because when we think of this, sometimes we think that, well, we shouldn't be concentrating on, on doing art. We should be concentrating on serving God, not understanding that those two aren't mutually exclusive. So, the art that the world and Hollywood are two. The art world and Hollywood are two of the most fertile mission grounds we have, but we're too busy giving the stink eye and making fifty not God's not dead movies. Uh, although I hear the Chosen is pretty good. My next question is: How long are we going to say that social activism without holiness equates to Christianity? When we seek justice, and we better be seeking justice, um, I can think of Micah 6:8 and Amos, uh, the prophet Amos. Uh, why is why is morality and ethics in regard to be behavior left out of the equation? Why does violence get a pass? Why and, and why do beliefs that are antithetical to the gospel, the gospel in the broadest sense? So if you think of gospel in the terms of, of contextual theology, that is uh, how other cultures around the world view the gospel and how uh, it, it's important to them. Well, if you take all that, uh, why do we let beliefs that are antithetical to the, that broad sense of the word, word, why do we let beliefs that are antithetical get enculturated back into that? And also, how long are we going to deny that racial reconciliation isn't important? A thought that I've been lingering on for a long time is that just because the United States adopted laws to uh, tackle the civil rights issues, does that that mean all of those people who opposed the equality of black Americans suddenly changed their hearts overnight overnight when the laws changed? I have a feeling that that didn't happen, and uh, here's how I know. Uh, so the other night when uh, a, a group of a few members of the church that I serve at, we all got together because we were uh, for our book study of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Well, the when the head pastor was about to, to come in, he saw a little leaflet on the ground And he brought it in to show us because he couldn't believe it. On the leaflet was a black and white picture of a young white uh, blonde woman. And beneath the picture it said, love your race. This reminded me exactly of the Nazi propaganda crapola that I would see in my uh, history textbook in, in high school and college. And that was left on the front door of a church. But th- that's not all, though, because on the back of the church doors, are, we face a, the back faces a wooded area, there, someone tagged us with graffiti, and the graffiti said, kill your local racist. So maybe let's not slap a label on somebody as soon as they seriously suggest that we need to talk about racial reconciliation. Let's not slap that woke label on them right away. Uh, How much uh, longer are we going to stay silent about abuse and oppression in our own churches? So based on who we are, uh, who we profess we are, abuse and oppression shouldn't happen within the church, and yet it does. And I guess my question is, who is the benefactor of staying silent against abuse? it's certainly not the victim. So is the benefactor the image of the church? Is it the image of Jesus? Uh, Do we need to protect the church and the image of Jesus uh, by staying staying silent on abuse or oppression or or bullies or manipulation? I I think if we think like that, our faith is way too small. Uh, How long How much longer are we going to deny our sisters in Christ a seat at the table? You know, I've defended women in ministry uh, on this podcast in a few episodes, and I'm willing to do it until I die. Uh, How long are we going to avoid the Sermon on the Mount as a core part of the Christian faith? Uh, At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, those who listen to me are like those who build their house on the rock, and those who don't are like... The foolish who build their house on the sand, and they get their house gets swept away. So that it, the the Sermon on the Mount is not a uh, a thing for the next dispensation, if you believe in that kind of uh, theology. No, it's for the present Christian life, and it's something that we need to take seriously. So how long are we going to take all of those things that reek of the works of the flesh, some some that I've listed in these questions, and insist that Christian faith falls in line with all that? So Romans 10, 9 says, because if you if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God's, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But I've got to tell you that the heart doesn't mean this abstract valentine's day thing to the writers of the new testament the heart is the seat of the of the will of a person i would just say here that belief goes to the absolute core of a person and then is to be exercised throughout the believer's whole life so this isn't a generic faith it is a faith in jesus who is then inhabiting our will and inhabiting our whole life he's inhabiting our characters it, it, the statement in Romans isn't just a statement about knowledge the knowledge that he is our savior uh it's not knowledge of the intellect It's a statement that says you must connect the intellect to the character and then that resembles uh true faith but then if we if our characters don't reflect the character of Jesus, who is the embodiment of love, righteousness, and holiness, then we're just clanging symbols. And if you're saying, well, Tim, it's not that easy. Uh, I know that. We've got the situation in our lives that Romans 7 describes, where what we don't want to do, we do, and what we do want to do, we don't do. Yet, uh then in chapter 8, Paul goes on to talk about how Believers who live life in the Spirit set their minds on the Holy Spirit rather than on the flesh. So if our wills and our actions aren't producing the fruit of the Spirit, even though we claim to be Christian, how much can we say that we are being led by the Spirit? So no, it's not easy, I agree, but nothing worth anything is ever easy, and I'm tired of pretending that following Christ should be easy the way that we portray it here in in the West. But in the end, we find out how much lighter Christ's yoke was compared to the world's yoke. Uh, Christian is not a title, and it's not synonymous with other titles. It is a way of life. It is the way of life. It's the via salutis. And it's a surrender of ourselves to the author of life who makes us more like Him day after day. If we want to know what it means to be in the world and not of it, then we need to start doing the hard work of letting go of those pressures of falling in line with fallen human nature and start to do the hard work of yielding to the Holy Spirit. We need to count the cost of what it really means to be a follower of Christ. And if the cost is too much for you, then I have to ask, uh, what are you doing here? So that's something to think about if you've been a Christian for any number of years. Uh, that's all the time I have for this episode. Next month, I hope to be uh, have the another episode for the Back to Basics series. Uh, this one dealing with the Trinity. I do have a guest who's agreed to join me for that. Another professional theologian. And be sure to subscribe to the Theologian's Table YouTube channel, um, and I'll put that link uh, in the description for this episode. Because I I like to do uh, live streams occasionally, um, and I don't always convert them to a podcast. Also, stay tuned for a special announcement concerning the future of the Theologian's Table podcast. And as I always say, God bless and keep learning.